Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Dr. Baruch Halevi, and this is the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. Welcome back to the Defiant Spirit and Baruch Levy, also known as B, and this is part two of what I'm calling the geneagram. It's been a little hard for me to get that word down because it's make-believe, but nonetheless, um, I think it brings together two different ideas that I really believe in. One is the genogram. If you've never done a genogram, that's a historical family tree. No, it's an emotional family tree. That's what I meant, um, where you're exploring your family your inheritance, your legacy, their legacy, your inheritance from an emotional, I mean, it, it can also be lots of different things besides just emotional, just understanding intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, where you came from and unpacking your path, what you're carrying, what you want to set down, what you want to carry forward. I wrote a whole book on this called Spark Seekers. You don't want to carry, I want to carry my father's fire but I don't want to carry the destructive fire. I want to carry the constructive fire. So part of my responsibility as a son is to learn what not to carry on. And part of what I'm here to do is to carry on his legacy by um, taking the best of what he had to offer and sharing it with my children, my children's children, people around me. And so anyways, using the genogram, but also now bringing to it the Enneagram. This is part two. Part one, I got up to more of a present day use of a geneogram. I do this with families. I've done it with more and more. It's interesting. I'm doing a lot of work right now in corporate and organizational settings with the Enneagram. And it's tremendous. I love it. Bring me into your organization. We do assessments. We understand each other. We stop reacting. We choose our response. You have a roadmap. But what's happened is... Many of the people that I've worked with in the corporate settings are now asking me to do this with their families, with their spouse, with their children, with their friends, um, with their parents. It's amazing. And so if you would like, you, you can just engage me. And what we'll do is we'll do your Enneagram assessment and then we'll do your families. And as I said in the previous video or uh, podcast, if you're not watching this, you can get the slide over at uh, defiantspirit.org under the podcast section. Scroll to the bottom. You can get my family's beautiful geneogram, a picture of all of them, at least the immediate family. And um, But if you don't, you know, if your kids aren't going to take it or your loved ones aren't going to take it or maybe, you know, your parents or grandparents like mine have passed, then you have to figure it out on your own. But that's amazing too. In fact, I think it's even more profound. I've gone through this process of figuring out what my best friend Mark's Enneagram type is and what my grandfather, both grandfathers, both grandmothers, they didn't take the assessment. My father, it was, and that's a good segue into this conversation. It has been profound, healing, insightful, inspiring to do this around, especially the deceased. Because again, there's no way you can get obviously retroactive testing done. And Again, I do believe that the process, the means, is more important in this case than the end. So, 
I'm sharing with you sort of as I am a client and the work that we would be doing together. So I'm sharing you in, you know, in, insight into my family, my journey, as hopefully it'll inspire you to do this work around yours. So let's take my family's legacy. Now, I've been very open about it. I speak about it a lot to the point where people have told me to stop talking about it, family members and former congregants and all kinds of people. And I'm an Enneagram 8, so I'm here to comfort the afflicted, to afflict the comfortable. I just seem to forget the first part. I'm pretty good at the second part. So I just keep talking about my father's suicide and my grandmother's suicide. Why? Because this is how you bring redemption. This is how you right the wrongs. This is how you heal the brokenness. It doesn't get healed by shushing it, by being quiet about it. Um, as Simon and Garfunkel said, silence like a cancer grows. It destroyed my family. It's why my. It's not why my father killed himself. It's a contributing factor to my father's suicide. By the way, I stopped saying complete suicide, and I've gone back to commit suicide. I don't like saying complete suicide. I know people have a hard time with it. You can email me. I'll defend my use of it. Commit suicide. I think there still is a um, destructive element that I don't think we are honoring by saying complete suicide. Plus, it to me sounds ridiculous. My father completed suicide. It sounds like he's like an overachiever, like he did it, right? It, it strikes me as, I don't know just off and it's just mine you call it whatever you want for my dad it was commit suicide because in many ways he um, violated a contract he did and so did my grandmother and i have forgiven them and i love them and me talking through it i believe is part of the process and for me i am not judging you know if you have a loved one who um, took their life by suicide maybe that's a better way for you to say it I would never, ever pass judgment. I can only speak for my healing journey. Nobody can tell you how to make yours. Nobody can tell me how to make mine. For my father, um, his suicide was the continuation of my grandmother's suicide. My grandmother, I think, was an Enneagram 1. Not 100%. She's up here, Grandma Babe, my dad's mother. My grandma babe though had a strictness a rigidity to her i remember you know she was she was 15 when she um died by suicide and but i do remember sort of this structured strict like there was never a mess not that all ones are messless but they tend towards being more perfectionist so if she was a slob i would have really thought she may be something besides a one, but that was not the only contributing factor. There was a rigidity. There was sort of a strictness. I remember hugging her. And ones, not always, but tend to be, they're not necessarily hugging types. They can be, but I don't think it's the most standout quality of a one. I think um, there was a perfectionism. On the lower side, the sort of reactive side of the ones that I remember about her. I remember her always fidgeting with my tie and my clothes, making sure it's perfect. But more than that, there was a disappointment, right? A disappointment, I think, in others and in herself. And her suicide was incredibly complex and beyond my understanding because I don't have anybody really to talk to about it who knew her, who was there. And I've only had to sort of do my work. But that's part of it, though. You know, the more I've really thought about who she is and I've gone through some of the Enneagram types and the process, it's really helped me to get to know her posthumously, to get to know her plight. Ones carry probably the heaviest load of any type. I don't think they're more prone to suicide than other types. 
I do think four. If I if I had one type I would say is most prone to suicide, I would say it's the four. It does not mean that most fours will take their lives. It does mean that there's a depth and a darkness in the four and the five down below that most other types just don't know. But ones have this perfectionism and they can lose themselves under criticism, either of others, but most of all towards themselves. I see this with ones. They're so self-critical. So if my grandma babe was a, they called her babe, her name was Ruth. If my grandma babe was a one, then there probably was a self-loathing, a self-criticism more so than other types. Uh, lots of different things have led me to a one, but starting to see my family's pattern hanging out up in the one section started to make sense. I know for a fact my brother's a one. I know for a fact my son is a one. I think there's a lot of similarities between my brother and my dad and my son and my dad. Um, my dad was an amazing human being. I mean, I adored my dad. He was my superhero. He was the embodiment of right and wrong. That is a one thing. Same with my grandpa Jack, my maternal grandfather who's up there. Right and wrong. The good guys and the bad guys, right? My great, my grandpa Jack was a World War II vet, um, was D-17 maybe in, in Normandy. He was a real straight shooter, good man. And nobody questioned his integrity. Nobody questioned my dad's integrity. So there's, a, there's an integrity quality about ones and same with my son and that really has helped me you know understand my dad knowing that he felt like such a failure when he committed suicide when I was uh, early 30s and um, he felt so much self-loathing having made some bad choices and getting deeper and deeper down this hole I did think he was an eight like me um, but as I look back on it, as I've almost, it's, it's fun. It's been fun to talk to people who knew him, to talk to my mom, to talk to my siblings, almost like an interviewing process for my dad's Enneagram, doing this genogram. And um, it's, it was just a remarkable process to, not to meet him for the first time, because I knew him, but I guess I knew him as one, my version. My sister knew him as another version, my brother and so forth. And so to talk to everybody, to them work, you know, people who know the Enneagram, to talk through with them, it was really meaningful. Um, I thought he was an eight until I started talking it through, especially with my mom. He, he wasn't intense enough to be an eight. He wasn't um, driven enough to be an eight. I then thought he was a six, maybe a sexual six, which can look like an eight, but more of a fearful place. And I do think he thought like a six which is what's underneath there. It says he acts like a one, feels like a four, thinks like a six. Um, so I do think he thought like a six. And however, what moved me up to the one again was being drawn up there when doing this for my grandma, babe, doing this for my son, doing this for my brother, starting to see the constellation up there. And even my grandfather, who was on the opposite side of obviously my family tree, no connection to my dad, but I do also believe our souls travel in soul groups and I think my dad and my grandpa Jack had an antagonism. They, they liked each other well enough. But I think there was a piece that irked my grandfather about my dad. Um, because my dad didn't stand up to that ultimate decision that maybe my grandfather grappled with. I don't know. But 
my grandpa Jack lost some respect for my dad after he did what he did. So, um, yeah, so it's also helped me pay attention to my son. I, I've mentioned a couple times, I believe we're here to redeem the past, to redeem tragedy. And as Dr. Viktor Frankl says, to turn tragedy into triumph. How do we do that? By learning the lessons. It isn't to say that my dad died so I could learn these lessons and pass them on to my son. It's to say my dad died, tragic death, an atrocity on so many levels, and either it's meaningless or I make a stand and I go into the darkness to discover the meaning. And so what I have done is committed myself to go into my dad's darkness to discover, as we call them, Nitsuts and Kabbalah sparks of light, to bring those sparks out and to illuminate the darkness. And a practical way is understanding my dad was a one, my son's a one. I need to help my son go down a different path. And one of the ways I do that is by moving him away from perfection. My dad got caught up in this perfection, this ideal. My dad was an idealist. That's why the subtype up there is the idealist. My son has a lot of that. It's a different subtype. But nonetheless, all ones have to stand guard against that. And I've really tried hard, especially the past five years, with my son to move him off my father's idealistic path into a realistic path. From perfection to good, or from good to better, but not perfect. And there is no perfect. And maybe my dad would still be here. Maybe my grandma would still be here if they would have been moved away from this perfection, this path of perfection, and lived on the path of the real and the good. So it's been a very meaningful process to understand my son, understand my father, in many ways see my son as the redemption of my father and my work as a conduit to help mediate that. Some other really important learnings. Um, I, I had a hard time after my grandmother killed herself with my grandfather, Grandpa Harold, who remained alive. He was distant. It was so hard to like emotionally connect. I feel like a four. I'm an eight, but I feel like a three and a four. I, I never, I'm almost identical to them. So, but if, but a four for sure would have a hard time with a five because four is the most emotive and five is the least emotive. My grandpa was like, there was no there there. Like I wanted to reach in and grab his heart and I couldn't. He was generous with his, his, his you know, he showed his love by what he would give you. Because for him, that was an act of, um, of parting with his precious resources. Fives tend to be conservative. So there's always this conserving, conserving or withholding nature. So for my grandpa, giving money was his act of generosity. Now, I only knew that retrospectively in doing the geneogram work and really appreciating that my, my grandfather's symbol and sign of love was to write a check with no pomp and circumstance, no, you know, nothing other than here's the check. And I even have to ask him for it sometimes. And that felt like, why can't he just give it to me? But he, he, it was an act of defiance for him to write the check and to give it. And so really softening my heart in uh, my later years to my grandfather, who was emotionally not able to get go there. It doesn't mean fives can't. I mean, work with many fives, especially sexual fives, who can and do go there. But my grandfather was, um, you know, 
up against his battles in life, not for me to judge. It's given me a greater appreciation of just what he was up against, having had a um, having had a wife who um, killed herself. So, really understanding that relationship and healing it, and um, I also think it's why I'm an eight. Now, people ask me all the time, you know, are you born your number? Do you become your number? Yes. Nobody has an answer. If they tell you they're lying, nature, nurture, yes. It's complicated. I do believe we come out a certain way, but within that, we have degrees of shaping it. And I think that early on, I mean, really early, I think it's pre-sort of cognition, you know, early days or months, certainly first year, we start intuiting boundaries between parents and family dynamics and all whole host of you know epigenetics all kinds of things that go into who we are and I, I I sensed that I needed to be an eight it's again not coincidental that lots and lots of firstborns are eight I don't meet that many who are middle children who are eights maybe there are I don't meet that many I, I do meet some who are younger like not the oldest but not the middle um, but I don't think it's surprising that I would either choose to become an eight or just naturally fill in that role because there's a there's a strength now it's not like strong as in I'm stronger than you in some ways it's a weakness because eights sort of armor up for the battle and that can be a sign of weakness you know I have a very hard time shedding my armor letting people in I mean I can share with you about my dad's suicide my grandma's suicide and all this stuff. So it might seem revealing or divulging, but in some ways I'm not being vulnerable with you. I'm sharing it from a teaching perspective and a, and a resilience perspective. That's not the same thing as weeping together and me terrified that I could be a third generation. Like that's a different conversation. Now I don't fear that because I stand guard against that. And um, But I think that's the eighth thing, right? I think I'm proactive because my dad in some ways was reactive. My dad didn't think ahead. Ones don't think about the future. They tend not to think about the future. Eights are future focused. My dad didn't plan for what's next. So eights and ones are both impulsive, but eights are much more focused on the future and ones are much more in the present and they don't really want to deal with more future stuff. So um, my eightness, I think in many ways intuited that I kind of had to armor up in this family. I, I do know that at a very young age, I felt a little scared around my dad, never physically abuse, physical abuse. I don't believe, you know, that it was emotional abuse. I just think that it was an angry person who's probably didn't even know he was that angry. Ones are angry. They don't know they're angry. Everybody around them knows they're angry. I was scared of my dad. My sister you know, talks about being scared of my dad, not for her safety. It's just overwhelming, you know, that intensity, unbridled. It's scary as a child. So what did I do? I think I out-angered him. Eights are more angry than ones. And I think I amped it up to another level. I remember my dad and I getting into heated fights, head to head. I said to him, you're going to end up getting divorced. And he got so mad at me for calling him out on that. Later on in life, I said, you're going to end up following in your mother's footsteps. He got so mad at me at that, about that. I'm not saying I was right for saying it. I am saying that, you know, I think I learned head-to-head -head fight from a very early age, and I've had to soften that.
Um, again, for me, it's, it was an act of protection. Now, knowing this, seeing my dad as a one, really under, I start to understand some of the battles that we had. I can start to and have started to forgive him and, and forgive myself. Understanding how I ended up as an angry eight, especially for many years, and how he ended up as an angry one because of his mother and so forth. So as I'll always say to you when we work together, it does not excuse anything. It explains. It doesn't excuse. It explains. I don't want to excuse his behavior. I don't need to. I don't need to excuse my behavior. I do want to explain it. I want to take responsibility for it. I want to change it. I certainly want to apologize for it. But I want to understand it. And that's when I start realizing the Enneagram is just so impactful in doing that. Giving me, giving you, giving us a language. Starting to see the dynamics. Not coincidental that he married an Enneagram 2. 2 is the one of the softer types on the Enneagram. 9s and 2s are more nurturing. 2s are the quintessential emotional intuitive so they know what you're feeling they would take care of you of course he gravitated towards a two um, he needed that my mom was in many ways his salvation when they got divorced i think you can really watch my dad's unraveling undoing because she anchored him into his into his heart into his nurturing the nurturer and you know, you can see that. Isn't it interesting? My grandma, Flo, if in fact she was a self-preservation to the nurturer, was married to my grandpa, Jack, this, um, the, the Enneagram One, like my dad and his wife and my grandma and her husband. There are these parallels, these energetic patterns that we're here to, to work on, to work through. So, um, yeah, so... This is really, um, oh, I guess one more thing is my grandpa Jack, you know, since we're dealing with more past in this conversation, my grandpa Jack was always a hero to me and I, I couldn't fully articulate why. And then when I put this together about a year ago, I started to see it because my dad aspired to be a lot like my grandpa Jack. My grandpa Jack was, again, it was a moral rock, right? He was a rock. He was like, uh, he was an anchor for my family. And there was a stability around my Grandpa Jack. Now, it isn't to say he was perfect. It isn't to say he was without sin or blame or um, without his imperfections. We all have them. But I always felt secure around him. I felt that way about my dad, too. Up until, you know, I don't know, maybe my late teens, early 20s. And then it started to come undone. But not with my Grandpa Jack. And I've always really gravitated towards him in my memories, in my meditations, in my moral compass, in the way I live my life. There was a duty, a service, an honor that my Grandpa Jack had. He was in the military. He was in the service. With, you know, love my dad dearly. He dodged the Vietnam draft. I can't judge him for that because it was not World War II, a different war, different circumstances. He was a different person. But my grandpa Jack um, enlisted. He was in grad school. He could have stayed out, at least for a period of time, but he enlisted. He, um, he, he didn't have to go. He chose to go. And so I really have always deeply respected him. My, my grandpa Harold was, um, was exempted from World War II for various physical reasons. But I always sensed that it was much more of a... Even if he could have been in it, it's not. It wasn't his character, his personality. But my grandpa Jack, he was my hero. I used to wear his 
his um, army helmet and his army jacket and play war, play military. I was um, I was um, Major Jack. That was his. Um, that's was his rank in the in the um, United States Army. He drove a half or he commanded a half track unit, and I would just play half track. I was maybe eight years old, but you know, to me there was this moral integrity, and so I can feel that almost counterbalance for me up in that same any uh, corner up there. And I'm working through all of my stuff with my dad and my grandpa, my brother, my son, my grandmother. A lot of going, a lot going on up there. And um, this is another way that I just really think this is a profound experience. If you're interested in putting together your geneogram and looking at it from a present perspective with your current family, just understanding your family dynamics, looking at it with the past and eye towards the past, or thinking about your future, which will be my next podcast. We'll talk about how to think about it to fulfill your legacy with the people around you and working through it, maybe even sort of the spiritual aspects of it. But the bottom line is, for now, you can learn more about it over at defiantspirit.org. If you'd like to work with your Enneagram or your family's constellation, give me a shout. Until then, defy your number and live your spirit. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Baruch Halevi. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving a five-star review and share this podcast with others. To learn more about the Defiant Spirit, get more inspirational content, or see how we might work together to live your Defiant Spirit, visit defiantspirit.org. Until then, take back your power and live your Defiant Spirit.